wish to greet you this morning in Jesus' name. As Paul writes to the Philippians, it says, Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of man. And being found in fashion as of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, of things in earth, and of things under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The description of Jesus. There's a description of Jesus in Isaiah 53 that says he had no form or comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. It says that he was stricken and he was afflicted and his visage was marred more than any man. In Luke chapter 2, we read of Jesus' birth and because there was no room in the inn, his parents had to go to a stable or perhaps more accurately a cave out in back of town. And that's where he was born and he was laid in the feed trough. Jesus said of himself that the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He also said of himself that the Son of Man came to give himself a ransom for many. He did not come to minister. I'm sorry, he did not come to, to be ministered to, but he came to minister. That is a description of our Lord and of our Master. Did you ever think of the incongruity of serving someone who was so humanly despised, so humanly without status and without position, But it's because of that that God exalted him. And it's because of his humility that we worship him. And it's because of his humility that we humble ourselves and acknowledge him as our Lord. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes, your sakes, it says, he became poor, that ye through his poverty might become rich. And then in Revelations chapter 1, it says that he is the one who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And I would like to think about that this morning. The one who washed us from our sins in his own blood. We sang that song. About that fountain being filled with blood. 
that was taken from Emmanuel's God with us. Emmanuel's veins. And sinners who need to be cleansed when they immerse themselves in that blood lose all their guilty stains. Now I've been preaching uh, through the Articles of Faith, our 18 articles, the Dortre Confession of Faith that was drafted in the city of Dortre back in 1632, and they, they drew up 18 articles of faith. And I have been preaching through that and have come to Article 11, the washing of the saints' feet. And that's the um, sermon I would like to preach this morning. And I'd like to read that article for you. It's Article 11, the washing of the saints' feet. We also confess a washing of the feet of the saints, as the Lord Jesus did not only institute and command the same, but did also himself wash the feet of the apostles, although he was their Lord and Master, thereby giving, giving an example that they also should wash one another's feet, and thus do to one another as he did to them, which they also afterward taught believers to observe, and all this is a sign of true humiliation, and yet more particularly as a sign to remind us of the true washing. The washing and purification of the soul in the blood of Christ. So this, this ordinance, this command, this institute of washing... The saint's feet is based primarily on John chapter 13. And what I invite your attention there, John chapter 13. But it's also based on a passage in 1 Timothy 5, where he's talking about accepting widows into the number of the church. And Paul writes to Timothy, he says, Let not a widow be taken into the number under threescore years old, having been the wife of one man, well reported of for good works, if she have brought up children, if she have lodged strangers, if she have washed, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has released, relieved the afflicted, and if she have diligently followed every good work. Now, I don't think that the woman in question in this passage was expected as having been involved in washing the saints' feet ceremonially because she wasn't even numbered with the saints, but rather that she was literally involved in washing the saints' feet, perhaps literally, but also perhaps in principle. And, and we'll think about that in a little bit. So she was, if, if she was to be considered as to being taken into the number, one of the things that she had to do was to wash the saints' feet. Probably not ceremonially, but rather literally, as in washing people's feet to clean them up. But more importantly, probably, is that she has been of service to the people of God. All right, so that's that's the one the one scripture that's cited in the in the confession of faith, and the other is this passage here in John thirteen. And like to read the first. Oh, let's say. Um, 17 verses. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. 
And supper being ended, the devil having now put into Judas, into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, ye are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you. Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. I'm sure you you have heard um, expositions of how this took place and and so on, and, and that's fine. We will get into that a lot. But Jesus was there with the disciples in the upper room after they had commemorated the Passover and Jesus took off his uh, the the outer cloak he was wearing that's his garments and took a towel and he wrapped it around himself and he, he tied it around his waist and then he takes water and pours it into a basin and he did just what the servants typically would do to to a guest or to their master and that was to wash their feet And of course, Peter objected to this. And Jesus tells him that, look, if you don't allow me to wash your feet, you don't have any part with me. Of course, Peter, we often caricature caricature him as being impetuous and outspoken. And perhaps he was. And here he says, look, you can't wash my feet. I'll, I'll never stand for this. But Jesus said, listen, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And so Peter, he just says, well, then, all right, just wash me all over. But then Jesus gives us this. And this is kind of the crux of the whole thing. He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. All right. So think about this. We'll, we'll, and we'll think about this some more as we go through. But he that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet. So this feet washing doesn't necessarily wash a person inwardly. It absolutely doesn't wash a person inwardly. All right. That has to have happened already. But what Jesus was saying was that I am doing this as a representation of that washing that has been done already. I think that would be a good way to think of it. 
He that is washed needeth not to, needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. Now, down towards the end of the passage, it says that we, we do this because Jesus told us that we should and that we'd be happy if we would. Now, I'm interested in knowing why he uses the terminology here. In verse 14, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, we have commands and we have examples, and here we have an ought to. And I think it, it, it um, means that we have a moral obligation. We're obliged to. But for the one who really wants to follow him because he loves him, his example, his commands, and his ought to's all become the guide for our life. So let's don't discount this idea of washing feet because Jesus said that we ought to and he didn't say you have to. Alright? But I want to think about what this, what is actually in back of this. Why did Jesus want us to do this? So let's think about this. And there, there's two virtues that are demonstrated for us by our perfect example. And the first is love. When Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. That means that he showed them the full extent of his love. Now I think probably Jesus is referring to, or John here is referring to Jesus' action in the demonstration of love in washing their feet, but also probably in what Jesus was about to do in sacrificing himself for the sins of the world. So he showed them the full extent of his love. He, he loved them to the end. First John 3, verse 16, Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So we know Jesus' love. Jesus' love was demonstrated to us by him, by offering his life for us. And then he says that we should do the same. And then the second virtue that Jesus is demonstrating is that of humility, taking the role of his servant. But let's think more about what it means to be washed. The true washing, which the confession of faith says that this is particularly what this account is about. The true washing. Now this, this idea of washing is to help us understand what happens inside of us when we repent and believe. Literally or technically speaking, there's... No water comes into and, and washes our hearts. All right. This is, this is allegorical or a metaphor for what happens when we repent and believe that we are washed. So he uses this as a demonstration or an example. So what, what gets dirtier than feet? See, it's your feet that connect you with the dirt. It's your feet that connect you to the ground, right? 
It's your feet that step in the mud in the, and in the manure of the dusty streets of Jerusalem. It's your feet that callous and crack. And I suppose that we lose some of the impact of dirty feet when we live in the 21st century. And we, we may lose some of the, the meaning of feet washing because most of us wear shoes and socks most of the time. But if you stop and think about it, maybe just a little bit. All right, because now now that we wear shoes and socks all the time, now your feet get deformed because your shoes don't fit right. And your turtles, your, your toes curl around one over top of the other and almost in under each other. And now people get toenail fungus. And if you don't wash your feet often enough, you get toe jam. And it's your feet that have your, the reputation to stink. This didn't happen in the ancient world. This happens in our time. So what I'm saying is that feet are feet, both in ancient times and in today. And so the analogy works for us today, too, is that our feet need to be washed. But now, when you wash your feet, you become fit and prepared to walk in the house and to be with the people that are around you. And this is a practical representation of a deep spiritual truth. This true washing. Jesus said that if he does not wash us, we have no part with him. He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. Now this idea or metaphor, this motif of washing runs throughout scripture. There's, there's a couple different ones that, that we see. And, and washing is one of them. We have the idea of, uh, among these ideas, we have the idea of covering. Our sins and our shame needs to be covered. That happened in the garden. And it also says in the New Testament in 1 John that, um, I can't get this in my head. I better turn. I better turn to that. But so much that love covers the multitude of sins. That's what I wanted. Is that love covers the multitude of sins. So we have this idea of covering of sin. But then we also have an idea or a motif of sacrifice for sin. That one we understand the Passover lamb and all the sacrifices of the Old Testament pointed forward to the sacrifice that Jesus made when he offered himself on the cross for the sins of the world. So we have that idea as well. But then we also have this idea of washing throughout Scripture that is a metaphor for what happens when we repent and believe. Now in the Old Testament, it's typological all right there's this type of washing and it pointed forward to this washing that has to happen to every one of us as we repent and believe so in the courtyard of the tabernacle there was a bronze labor now in this this in this courtyard was the altar of burnt offering but the labor stood ahead of that and before the high priest could legitimately offer a sacrifice he had to wash himself in 
the labor. Exodus 30, verses 18 to 21. Thou thou shalt also make a laver of brass, and his foot also of brass, to wash withal. And thou shalt put it between the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, and thou shalt put water therein. For Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet thereat. When they go into the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water that they die not. Or when they come near to the altar to minister or to burn offering made by fire unto the Lord, so shall they wash their hands and their feet that they die not. And it shall be a statute forever for them, even to him and to his seed throughout all their generations. So we know that this idea of washing in this labor, in this tabernacle, was figurative. They literally had to do it, but it pointed to something in the future. Hebrews explains that to us. He says, which was a figure of the time then present in which in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that did not make the, them that did not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which only stood in meats and drinks and divers washings and cardinal carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. So this labor and this high priestly washing was imposed on them as a figure or as a shadow and it pointed to the future the high priest had to wash before he could approach God acceptably now it tells us that Bezaliel who made the laver made it from the looking glasses of the women who gathered at the door of the tabernacle now I think that's kind of interesting so it's this basin or this laver that was to represent the true washing was made from from the polished brass mirrors that the women used to look at themselves. So, So here's the lesson, I suppose, is that it's more important to have your hearts washed than to make sure your face is clean. So God wants to work in your heart. That's the point. Now, I don't know how big the labor in, this, in the tabernacle was. Maybe somebody can help me out. But I couldn't find how big this was. But Solomon, when he built the temple, had one made that was really impressive. It was 15 feet across, and it was seven and a half feet deep. And it sat on the backs of 12 brazen oxen. There was three looking north, three looking south, three looking west, and three looking east. And the rim was decorated with lilies, and it was cast from solid bronze, a handbreadth thick. That's how big that Solomon's labor was. So I think we get the idea that this ceremonial washing, this typological washing, was really important. Now, I'm not sure when when we come into the Gospels, and I'm not sure exactly how the, the Pharisees and all these guys kept all these washing laws, but they had at least those and perhaps more that they were assiduously, just conscientiously and legalistically keeping And in Matthew 15, Jesus was confronted by the scribes and Pharisees because his disciples weren't washing their hands before they ate. 
And Jesus rebukes them sharply and reminds them that uncleanness isn't external, but uncleanness, real uncleanness, is a heart-level issue. And the disciples still weren't convinced about Jesus' lesson, and he asked, and they asked them about Jesus, they asked him about this. I can't say this. The disciples weren't sure about all of this, and so they asked Jesus later, and Jesus explains it this way to them. And this is in Matthew 15. And Jesus said, Are you also yet without understanding? Do not ye yet understand that whatsoever entereth in at the mouth goes into the belly and is cast out into the draft? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and fornications and thefts and false witness and blasphemies. These are the things that defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands defileth not a man. So Jesus is saying that the external, this external washing that you are so conscientious about really is missing the point. The point is that it's a heart level issue because out of there, out of your heart is where all these things spring from. See, the Pharisees had made the type, the essence. But if you do that, you offend both the type and the essence. So let's think about this spiritual washing. So I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to go through scripture and, and, present to you that this washing is something that runs throughout. Now, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So there was a washing that took place in these Corinthians' lives. They had been this and they got washed and now they are no longer that. Such were some of you, but ye are washed and ye are sanctified and ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. So there's this washing that changes a person from this unclean and vile sinner until to someone who is justified and sanctified. There's a washing that happens. Titus 3, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And here again we see this foolish and disobedient and deceived person having been washed by regeneration, it says here. And then also we have this passage in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present himself 
he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Now, when you read this passage, it's hard to define what Paul is actually writing about. Is he actually writing about Christ and the church, or is he actually writing about the husband and wife relationship? And the fact of the matter is, is that, yes, he's writing about both. And so he's talking about how that we are washed by the washing of the water by the word. So we are sanctified and cleansed by washing. And then we have an another one in um, Revelation chapter 7. After this, I beheld and lo a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues and stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands and cried with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I said, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They have washed their robes. This innumerable company that is praising God has washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. So we have it typified in the old. We have the the spiritual essence explained by Jesus and by the Apostle Paul. And we have this future seen in Revelation of being washed in the blood of Jesus. The song asks the question, have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? If you have the black mark of sin on your life, you need to be washed. And there is only one agent that can cleanse your soul, and that is the blood of Jesus. Wash you and make you clean and put away evil Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Jesus says that if you are not washed, you have no part with him. No part with him. To say that, to have Jesus say to you that you have no part with him is a calamity of all calamities. It means that you are outside of the family of God. It means that you are outside of the kingdom of God. Just like the man in the parable of the wedding who wasn't prepared by having on a wedding garment, Jesus will say to the angels about you, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. That's how important that washing is. If you are not washed, it means that you are and forever will be outside of the kingdom 
of God, rejected and hopeless. But you need to turn to Him for the cleansing of your soul. Like David said in Psalm 51, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to Thy loving kindness and according to the multitude of Thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. That is the essence of what the feet washing ceremony is is that we remember the true washing of our souls in that blood of Jesus. I think it's accurate to say that there is only one washing, and that is by the blood of Jesus. And I think it's also accurate to say that we have to stay clean. I invite your attention to Hebrews 10. I want to start reading in verse 11 and read a, perhaps a little bit of a lengthy passage here down to verse 27. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away, away sins. Uh, I was going to make a couple comments here before I start. Think about how that Paul bridges both the idea of having been washed and of staying clean, how he ties those together, and watch how he talks about how that we have to have how we have to be washed by the blood of Jesus, and how that we stay clean. Keep your eyes open for that. All right, verse twelve. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From henceforth, expecting to his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering hath he perfected forever them that are sanctified. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiness by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but is certain fearful looking for judgment and fire indignation which shall devour the adversaries. So in verse 14, It says, He hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Now, I don't know much about the Greek language, but the way that I understand this is that this idea of being of are sanctified has the idea of a present and ongoing state of being. It isn't just something that happened in history. 
This both happened in history and it is a current state of being. All right, so just being sanctified in the past is not necessarily what this is talking about. This is talking about being present day sanctified. You have been sanctified and you are sanctified. He has perfected forever them that are sanctified, are sanctified. And then verse 24 gives us the reason for our gatherings together. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. And this is to help us to stay in this state of having been washed and continuing to stay clean. I think that's what this is talking about. Because if we fall back, it says that if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, then there is no more sacrifice for sins. Just that fearful anticipation of judgment. And so that's the reason for our gathering together. And perhaps that's a little bit more negative than what we often think of it. But that is a very good and legitimate reason for us to gather together is to remind ourselves and to encourage ourselves and to spur us on together so that we don't fall back into sin. Because if we do, we only have that fearful anticipation of judgment. And so I'd like to get um, think about this practical uh, feet washing, not when I think of practical feet washing, let's not think of it as in how we wash feet, but as in this practical spiritual feet washing. Or you could say the responsibility within the brotherhood to help each other stay clean. Now I think that the two virtues that were so demonstrated, that were demonstrated so clearly by Jesus, that idea of love and of humility, need to be the hallmarks of our relationships with each other. And again, this verse in 1 John 3, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Alright, so here, here's a funny thing. It's, it's easy for me, and probably for you too, to, fant- to fantasize, maybe even about being a martyr. And we think of somebody like Baltazar Hubmeyer who recanted about three times, two or three times, and we, we kind of question his integrity. Well, I don't think we should do that. But it's easy for us to fantasize about it, and we, we imagine ourselves that I'd be the one who stays true to the end, unwavering, unflinching, unwavering and unflinching, sturdy and tall, there he stands. And the world hurls its worst at you and you don't flinch and you don't blink. It's easy for us to think about that. It's easy for us to imagine ourselves like that. But the fact of the matter is, sometimes we give into into temptation that hardly costs us anything. It's kind of the same with laying down our lives for the sake of our brother or sister. And so while we sit in the comfort of our easy chairs, we can easily imagine that we'd be the one who risks life and limb to rescue a child, to toss him off the railroad tracks just in time, but you yourself, you yourself get run over. It's easy to imagine that. And it's easy to imagine in a time of persecution that we'd resist giving out information about our brothers and sisters, even at the cost of torture, But when it comes down to how life actually gets lived, I shirk in giving a day's labor to a friend in need. And I reason out why I shouldn't give more to someone 
who's in need. I can't even sacrifice a little hang up I have for the sake of peace in the brotherhood. And I'll say something like that. Something like this is that you, you really don't understand how deeply I feel about this. But love will move you to action. I have to apologize to Longfellow here, but I love his poem. And I'll, I'll just I'll just mutilate it a little bit and I'll say love is real. And love is earnest and feelings are not its goal. More often than not, it's little things that actually get us. It's not the big flashy things. It's the exercise of love. More often than not, is as disgusting as digging out the sweaty lint from between someone else's toes. It's smelly. It requires us to get a little closer than what we are actually comfortable with. But love reaches in and washes out the grime and the cracks and crevices of someone else's life. It reminds a person of their bad habits. It reminds a brother you really shouldn't be doing that or a sister your attitude really wasn't Christ-like. It seeks to show the light of truth on an error that someone may have believed. It doesn't fight with, but it fights for his brother and sister. And it does so with humility. So love gets practical, it gets down and it gets dirty and it does so with humility. How do you like to be reminded of a problem in your life by a proud person? But here again, we have to remind, we have to think of the example of Jesus. that The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. And ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes... He became poor, that we, through his poverty, might become rich. So as we think about how that we approach someone in humility, we want to think about the posture of the washer, if you please. The posture of the one who is washing the other's feet. Now, I'm not one who has a lot of appreciation for art and for things like that. I guess you could say I'm a little bit of a Philistine. But every now and then there's something that will get my attention. Now last fall, I had the opportunity of seeing a, a traveling exhibit on um, the experiences of the conscientious objectors in World War I. And this, this exhibit had been at um, different places around, but I saw it when it was at the library on the uh, campus of Eastern Mennonite University in Harrisonburg. And while I was there, I saw a <clears throat> I saw a, sculpt, a sculptural representation of this ceremony of feet washing. It was a simple piece of work. It was composed in white rock, just formed of simple lines. But this representation helped me to understand something of the beauty of this teaching and this command of Christ. Now, I don't know how that you can represent or how you can describe love and humility in a hunk of rock, but somehow this artist accomplished it. And one of the things that caught my attention, and it just so happened, I'm sure, 
It wasn't necessarily designed to be so, but it just so happened by God's providence that the sun was brilliantly enlightening the face of the one who was kneeling before the other. But I think what caught my attention the most was the fact that these simple, almost featureless faces were turned toward each other. The one who was doing the kneeling and the washing, the one who was at the service of the other, the one who was cleaning out the toe jam and who was washing off the manure of the other's feet, the one by whom the other was being admonished, was shown gazing with love and humility in the face of the other. Galatians 6 verse 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. And also the one who was being served, the one whose feet were grimy and who sat there in need of cleansing was likewise gazing with equal love and humility in the face of the one who was correcting him. So maybe it takes humility and it takes love to wash. But it also takes humility and love to be washed. Take admonition gracefully and lovingly and openly is certainly a work of the Spirit of God in a believer's life. So this ceremony of feet washing is a visible illustration of the cleansing work of Jesus' blood applied to a guilty heart. It makes it clean and pure before God and it takes away the stain and the guilt of sin. And it, the, the feet washing ceremony reminds us of that cleansing blood of Jesus. And it is so appropriate, just like Jesus did, that we do it after we remember the blood and the shed blood and broken body of Jesus at the Lord's Supper ceremony. Washing each other's feet reminds us of that washing. And I think also, by extension, it reminds us of the love and the humility that we need as a brotherhood, as we care for each other on a spiritual level. Let's kneel for prayer.